0: Culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Well, how many times have you been in a conversation? Could be around the water cooler or it could be at a dinner party. And it comes up about the reliability of the Bible because you recognise that people would get to know Jesus if they had more confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Well, we're back with special guest Jonathan Clark today, who's written a book called Echoes of Jesus. Does the New Testament reflect what he said? And he likes to get into all the different depths and all the meanings of why people don't actually follow Jesus because they're not confident with the Bible. Jonathan, a special welcome back to 2020. Oh, thank you so much, Neil. Jonathan, we've spoken about a number of different dimensions uh, in just recent times. Let me ask you today about why people often don't feel confident in the Bible because they think that all of the manuscript evidence that's come down through the centuries isn't accurate and doesn't reflect the, the, the real way that the Gospel writers and the New Testament writers were actually saying things. Were mistakes made? How do you answer people when they say, I can't trust that what you read in the Bible today is truly accurate?
1: Sure. The first thing I would say is thank you for letting me know what your beliefs are. Uh, Can we talk about it? Um, If that was a real-life question. uh, What the facts are is quite intriguing. There are, of course, huge numbers of manuscripts, which by definition means handwritten copies of the New Testament in its original language, which was Greek. So we're fortunate we've got this rich supply, if you like, of copies of copies of copies of the four Gospels and the other books in the New Testament. Uh, Some people are surprised to know that we don't have the original copies that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote. They've long since disappeared or faded away, so to speak. But we do have copies of copies of copies ad nauseum by the hundreds. What's fascinating of... For some people to discover, in fact, it's disconcerting, is when they realise that all these copies aren't necessarily perfect mirror copies of the one before, or perfect photocopies of the one before. And when they hear that there's 400,000 differences between all these Greek manuscripts uh, about the wording and the letters in in the New Testament then naturally you get alarmed. I mean, 400,000 letters is a lot of changes. But, of course, that's 400,000 letters spread over large numbers of manuscripts over time.
0: Lots of people are not very familiar with the science of manuscripts and how they remain accurate, but we can all relate to the idea of Chinese whispers. Uh, You start at one end of a line and you whisper something into the ear of another, and by the time it gets to the end of the line, the message is completely changed. So is that a risk? And this is something you've been actually looking to document and find the evidence and how these manuscripts actually do reflect an accurate portrayal of Jesus, the apostles and the New Testament. Where do you start to explain to someone that these things are accurate in the way that they've been relayed down through the ages?
1: Sure. I I would certainly start off by giving them examples of when there have been changes so they can see how minor these changes are. Um, It's very easy for people, by the way, when they go on the internet, to read these statements about how distorted the copies of the New Testament are and how irretrievable the original sense is. So you shouldn't be surprised if someone raises this up or you've come across these thoughts yourself. So the first thing is I would say, yes, there are some changes and sometimes these changes have even been deliberate. And then of course that raises some people's hair because on the back of their on their backs because they think, what? Someone copied part of the New Testament and they deliberately made a change. And I say, yes, sometimes that happened. But they weren't malicious changes. They weren't trying to create a new picture of Jesus or alter or affect his teachings. I'll give you an example. One of the very old copies of part of the New Testament is called P forty five. P for papyrus, which was like paper back then so p45 is the is the name of this particular portion of the new testament that was discovered um, probably some uh, just before 1931 and this writer of p45 let's call him peter he made deliberate changes but what he did was he got rid of redundancies so a redundancy is for instance if i said my wife's wearing a beautiful red colored dress all, well, the word colour is redundancy. if she's wearing a red dress and it's obviously a red coloured dress. When you read when anybody reads our New Testament, you can't help but see, you can't help but see sometimes redundancies. So, for instance, in Mark chapter six, we read about Jesus miraculously feeding the crowds with five loaves and two fishes. The interesting thing, when you read these verses and about verses thirty eight to forty one, the five loaves and the two fishes is repeated about 3 times this was an anathema to the author of P45 he wanted to speed up your reading so once the five and the two were said he wouldn't repeat the five and the two he'd repeat the loaves and the fishes but he just would get rid of the number 5 and the number 2 the second or third second and third times so when people hear well Is that all the change was? And you say, yes, that's all the change was. Then they they start to sit back and realise, well, it is possible to deliberately change a text without changing in any way at all the meaning of the text or what it
0: portrays. So 400,000 changes, though, the only way you could come up with that sort of figure is from where we stand today in a technological age where so many of those early manuscripts might be now computerised and therefore able to be compared in a computer age and that would identify any differences that were made. How much importance is there on the fact that today we can see across all of those different manuscripts what the differences were and still come out on top saying this is an authentic document?
1: Well certainly computers have sped up the process but the amazing thing is most of this was done if you like the hard way <laughs> over, the, over the last few well centuries really since some of the first big discoveries. Um, in my book I make it easier for people because I introduce some of the prominent partial copies and prominent complete copies of the New Testament and then I start to show them the differences. Um So many people, i found, they get absolutely shocked when you tell them how old our our oldest complete copy of the New Testament is. It goes back to about 325 AD. And simply saying to somebody, we've got a complete copy of the New Testament, handwritten in its original language, going back to 320 AD, and we can use that as one of our many gold standards, They're already just amazed. I mean, I can't find receipts for the tax office from three years ago. (laughs) Well, don't tell the tax office that. But anyway, um, so it is incredible what we've got. And we've got large numbers of partial copies going back to the 200s. And we've even got a very small number of copies going back to the 100s. Partial copies, of course.
0: Very partial. And if you really wanted to be a student of textual criticism, you can still study that these days. Uh, You've got to be a certain sort of personality, I think, to actually get into the uh, the nitty gritty of all of that, uh, a really very deep level of study. But some people do have that personality that they just love doing it.
1: Yeah. And, and some of these, um, we live in a time now we talk about neurodivergent personality types. Um, some of them might be along the uh, line of autism and we used to say um, anecdotally that some of them would seem to be very good at learning particular languages like Japanese. I could imagine that someone like that, uh, apart from anybody else that just loves detail, like someone who might become a, a surgeon or a computer programmer, learning Greek, learning the Greek of the New Testament will be such a great thing because there is so much of this evidence available on the net now. You don't have to go to a, a, a museum In London or Germany, to see some of these texts now, you can do it from your own lounge room. You just need to read Greek or buy my book.
0: And We'll talk about your book in just a moment, but here we are. uh, We're speaking English in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're talking about Greek manuscripts and the way that they have uh, been translated into our own Bible because uh, when you talk about the differences in the Greek manuscripts, Uh, Mm -hmm. There's also the difference in language by the time we get to look at a Bible now, opening it up and reading those Gospels, Mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Mm -hmm. So when the translator is using the evidence from all of these early manuscripts, they're often dealing with the sorts of resources that identify the difference in the manuscripts so that they can give us an accurate translation in what that might mean for our English language. Is that a fair enough way of saying the yeah, sort of work sure. they do in translation?
1: The, the, in translation it is. So the first job goes to the textual critic. He's got to work out, well, what was the, the best or most likely reading of the original Greek manuscripts? Then the translators come along and they use that information to translate in the Bible into you know hundreds of languages that we've got today. Languages are living. They change over time, just like you and I change over time. And so some of the words that might have been appropriate for a 1970s English version of the Bible are not so appropriate for a 2030 English version of the Bible. So sometimes the reason for multiple translations is not that our understanding of the Greek has changed, but the way we speak English and use words has changed. But you're right, there's not always a a direct mapping of each Greek word for each English word. And apart from that, the, the grammar is different as well. And so there are, thankfully, many reputable translation committees. And these are groups of professionals who do their best best to copy the Greek into our language of English, m- uh, making allowances for the fact that there's always not a good direct mapping of one word to the other. Can I give an example? Yes. So let's imagine that you're in a language group, not English, where the number of verbs were, verbs were limited. So in this case, I I, I learnt this from some friends of ours who have been translating in New Guinea. In this case, the verb was to do with movement. So we walk on the land, we run on the land, but we swim in the water. Fishes swim in the water, birds fly in the air. This language group only had one verb for something moving across the land, which would be a pig or a person, and something swimming in the water like a fish. So the translators come to the text where it talks about Jesus walking on the water. Those translators can't use that one verb, can they? Because they would understand that Jesus walked on the water in their language meant Jesus went for a swim like a fish. So translators have to, by necessity, sometimes add words. But they're not adding meaning in the sense of a new meaning. They're creating the original meaning by adding words. So in this particular case, they said, Jesus walked on the water like a man walks on the land. So those extra words help them picture the scene of Jesus walking on the water when they didn't have a verb to differentiate
0: between going for a swim in the water and walking on the water. So Jonathan, from Jesus saying the words he said in the New Testament to those New Testament writers writing them down faithfully, and uh, then all of the different manuscripts that have come down through the centuries and the translation into our English language as we open up an English language Bible today. How reliable is it when we open up a reputable version of the Bible that what we are reading is accurate?
1: Well, I'd have no hesitancy that you can stake your life on it. And, of course, this is what we do as Christians, especially in other countries where persecution is rife. Are they foolish to stake their life on it? I think the research I show in my book and, of course, in many other great books out there is that you are not a fool For when you read John 3.16, that God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. When you read that, you are reading basically as if you are listening to Jesus telling you that from a field or from
0: a boat. And if you wanted to get into the depth of the studies, yes, you can. Well, our guest, Jonathan Clark, has written a book called Echoes of Jesus. Does the New Testament reflect what he said? You can get a hold of the Echoes of Jesus book at Vision Store, vision.org.au, and you can connect with Jonathan at echoesofjesus.com That's echoesofjesus.com Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us once again today on 2020. And thank you so much for this great privilege.